Hello, everybody. Welcome back to episode seven of the Gratis Group Chat. I'm your host, Kaylee O'Connor, and today we are really in for a treat. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Number one, I'm about to head to the airport to go on two trips in a row. Very exciting. A little stressful. So a lot of the time I will be reading off of the computer and just giving you guys info to chew on. Today's subject is going to be a little bit more serious than usual and it has to do with something that happened almost a decade ago. For this episode we're going to be talking about a very serious subject. It's one I'm very passionate about and if you follow me anywhere on social media you have already picked up on this being something that I like to educate my followers on and something that I am really well versed in. I feel like today a lot of people we just can't dig deep in the subjects. There's just so much information to consume but this is one area and one subject that I've done a lot of research, I went to school for, and I'm just really passionate about. Today I want to give you insight on my background within the fashion industry. I want to talk about the people who make your clothing and the history behind your clothes, and also ways that you can acquire and get rid of clothing in an ethical and a sustainable, mindful way. It's always surprising to me how much people do not know about the subject of ethics within their clothing, and how often most of us don't even think about where our clothing comes from, how it's made, who made it, etc. When I have conversations with my friends, I really push them, probably to the point where they are frustrated with me, but I really want them to think about the background of the things that show up at their home or at the stores that they go to because they didn't just land there, they didn't just appear there, they were created somewhere and they were created by someone and there was a lot of work and thought put into the creation of that item. Not only are there positives and well intentions to the way that our clothing is created, but there's also a lot of ways that people are exploited and the earth is exploited in the creation of your accessories, your clothing, your home goods, and really everything that we in the Western you know, United States really consume. So a little bit of background on me. When I was growing up, the places that I would shop for clothes were the Mall of America. I live 15 minutes from there, so that was not a regular shopping place, but when family came to town, we would go there. Otherwise, we would do like department stores like Macy's, JCPenney, Sears. You have your big box stores like Walmart and Kohl's, later Target. We rarely bought things 100% full price. A lot of times we would do discounted or clearance sale, whatever would get the most bang for our buck, so to say, and trying to get the most amount of product for the least amount of money. My mom's family was also really good with hand-me-downs. My cousin Marissa always gave me hers until I no longer fit in them because I am more than half a foot taller than her now. Going off of that too, my mom is really into antique shopping for our home goods. She and my grandma and my other aunts would go and do that. And really a lot of shopping became like a social experience. It was getting outside of the house, it was acquiring something new that you felt good in, or acquiring something at an antique shop that you'd been searching for for a long time. And so my relationship to shopping in a general sense when I was really young was always really positive because it was time with family, it was intentional social hours, 
And it also meant that I got something fun and exciting out of the experience in a materialistic sense. Some background on my family. My dad was a child right after the Great Depression era. And so when you look at that, his family was very financially stable that I know of. But there's a lot of outcomes of the Great Depression that really affect how people think about the longevity of items. I remember my mom's mom also was a child of the Great Depression era, and she wouldn't get Tupperware. She would use Cool Whip containers, and when they would crack, she would duct tape them. And just the way that they elongated the life of things was really interesting, and I don't see that practice a lot today. Now, was that always the wisest thing to do? Sometimes there are just things that are run into the ground and it's time to get new items. But in a lot of ways, they really tried to expand the dollar as much as they could and expand the longevity of the life of a product. And then my mom grew up in a lower income home and so a lot of her experience with shopping as a young adult and a child was getting things as cheaply as you can, having hand-me-downs, more thrift-related, low-income type of lifestyle. So having parents with this background meant that we were, in my knowledge, always financially stable other than the 2008 recession time, which I think a lot of people can relate to that and remember that. But I never had to figure out how I was going to be fed. I never had to worry about anything like that. And I understand that that already puts me light years ahead of other people. And then that is a privilege to grow up in that background. But I do think also I wasn't given everything that I wanted either. And so things like shopping were for really specific situations like back to school or a holiday, just looking a little bit nicer, dressing up, school pictures, something like that. To put more perspective to the background of my life, outside of my family, I was born in 1995, and a few things started to come together that affected the way people shopped and thought about clothing at this time. Mall culture was in full swing, and it came to a head in the early 2000s, and I remember when I was graduating high school, which I graduated 10 years ago now, mall culture was still pretty big. It wasn't as big as I think the early to mid 2000s, but the 2010s, I believe, ultimately have almost killed mall culture. The 1990s was also the decade after the financial crisis of the 80s, and even though things had really stabilized again, I think when you go through a time like that, as we are kind of living in now in the United States with some economic instability, the way that you think about items outside of basic needs really start to change. So when you get in that mindset, but then you get stable and you have a lot more money to spend and a lot more disposable income, the way that you approach shopping can change and the way that you approach purchasing and the thought pattern behind that can really be affected. Beyond this too, the internet had come out and that really was starting to spur on the rapid change of trends on how people purchased instead of brick and mortar and in person. They were starting to be able to purchase online as we got into the early 2000s. And so being able to communicate and purchase online really changed the trajectory of the fashion industry and the speed at which trends changed. As a teenager, when I started making my own money, I would go to places like H&M, Forever 21, Charlotte Russe, and many others within the MOA because the prices were dirt cheap, the products were trendy, 
and I could play the part of someone who could afford nice quality current items without the budget that was necessary to actually have that lifestyle. But all of this played into the concept of how I purchase home goods, decor, fashion, accessories, and really every purchase that I make. It changed the way that I psychologically think about shopping, and it changed the way that I evaluated the value of a product. With all of this in mind, I started attending St. Catherine University in the fall of 2014 with the intent to major in fashion merchandising and minor in integrated marketing, communication, and design. And if you listened to my podcast a couple weeks ago, you know that I was successful in achieving that degree. When I went into that program, I expected to learn things about fashion design, merchandising visually, color theory, marketing, social media, which I did, but I also learned a lot about ethics and slow fashion. Now, maybe you're wondering, Kaylee, what is slow fashion? Well, in order to understand slow fashion, you first have to understand what fast fashion is, which is the antithesis of slow fashion. Fast fashion is a term used to describe the clothing industry's business model of replicating recent catwalk trends and high fashion designs, mass producing them at a low cost and bring them to retail stores quickly while demand is at its highest. So in other words, when I took a history of costume and a history of fashion class, what we always learned is that the elites of society create a trend. And so it used to be royalty, kings and queens, those in power. It eventually came into the industrial revolution for people who had amassed a great amount of wealth. And then it went into design houses, which we saw in the 20th and now the 21st century. And basically how this was set up is that there is always a trend. There's always something new and cool, and that's what keeps people elite. There's a lifestyle that you just cannot reach. We talked about this a couple weeks ago on the death of the cool girl. There is a lifestyle that's just not attainable for the average person. And so it's something that we look up to and we aspire to be like, and we will take whatever amount of that we can get in order to stay as relevant as we can stay. We saw these fashion houses emerge and they would do a collection two to four times a year. And that was something that people would want to be invited to. They really wanted to be a part of. That was the elite get together of fashion and of style. And then what would happen is that big box stores or fast fashion companies would take aspects of the trends they saw on the runway, recreate them for cheaper so that it could be mass produced to the masses of people who live around the world. So mass production of clothing did start around the industrial revolution era, but it really didn't pick up, I would say, until we started having TVs, internet, more screens, phones, being able to connect to one another, radio, and being able to market and communicate what was in trend. And then also at the same time, as all this technology is coming in, we're starting to see a trend towards business changing in the way that companies made clothing, mass produced, started to change as well. And this became the norm until 2013. The year before I started at St. Kate's in April of 2013, there was a factory that collapsed in Dhaka, Bangladesh. It was called Rana Plaza. This collapse changed every discussion around the fashion industry worldwide, 
and put a hyper focus on the people who make our clothes and the conditions with which they are made in. On April 24th, Rana Plaza, an eight-story building built in 2006, so it was only seven years old, which housed five clothing factories collapsed. Over 1,100 people were killed and over 2,500 people were injured. It is considered the deadliest non-deliberate structure failure accident in modern human history, the deadliest garment factory disaster in history, and the deadliest industrial accident in the history of Bangladesh. The collapse was so bad that it took almost a month for them to find all the bodies and cease searching. This wasn't the first incident of something like this happening in this area as only five months before this, 100 people were killed by being trapped in a Tazreen Fashions factory in the outskirts of the same town. Only a handful of the injured workers and or the families of the victims were given any type of minor financial support following these incidences. The factories within Rana Plaza manufactured apparel brands including Benetton, Prada, Gucci, Versace, the Children's Place, Joe Fresh, Mango, Primark, Walmart, and many others. Also, I feel like this is a great time to remind you that your $10,000 bag is being produced in the same factory as a $20 Walmart one. Just something to chew on. Just something to think about. From the beginning of construction, up until the day before the collapse, there was constant discussion on the concern for the building's structure. The head of the Bangladesh Fire Service and Civil Defense, Ali Ahmed Khan, had pointed out that the upper four floors were built without a permit, while the main architect, Masad Reza, had expressed concern due to the fact that the building was created for offices and shops, not factories with heavy machinery and thousands of people. The day before the collapse, a news report showed evident cracks in the walls and structure of the building. Workers were cleared out and the building was evacuated. But in the afternoon, Soal Rana, the building's main funder and namesake, so there was nothing to be fearful of and to return the work the next day. Ethertex, a Western retailing manufacturer who does a lot of clothing for the United States, threatened to withhold a month's pay from the workers who did not return the next day. The morning of the collapse, there was a power outage in the area, so diesel generators were started, which caused the vibrations and movement that ultimately resulted in the collapse at 8.57 a.m., leaving only the ground floor intact. More than half of the victims were women and children. After this collapse, the discussions surrounding global supply chains, Western fashion practices, and treatment of workers started to begin. For decades, the people making our clothing had no face, no name, no story. But wildly and quickly, they became real people on a screen, like Rishma Begum, who somehow survived for 17 days under the rubble of the building before she was found. St. Kate's chose to educate us on the Rana Plaza and other situations in which factories were negligent to their workers. Number one, because it was a direct result of negligence within the industry that we wanted to be a part of and influence. And two, because our generation was going to have to figure out how to resolve a lot of the issues created by generations before within this industry. 
Now, maybe you're saying, Kaylee, that was a one-time, maybe a two-time situation in the same area. But there's so many statistics to support the fact that the fashion industry that a majority of us who are watching and listening support is being incredibly negligent towards the earth and also towards the people within their companies. Here are just a few statistics about how the fashion industry affects the planet. The fashion industry is consistently within the top five most polluting industries. It currently continues to occupy its spot at number two under oil and gas. The fashion industry is responsible for 1.2 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions annually. The average American purchases a new clothing item every 5.5 days. That's over 66 new pieces of clothing per year. To put this into perspective, the average person in the early 1800s, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, had two to four outfits that they would wear for a majority of their adult life. So we're exceeding someone's lifespan of fashion every week on average. Globally, we consume or purchase 62 million tons of textiles per year. By 2030, that is expected to reach 102 million tons. Of the 100 billion garments produced every year, 92 million tons end up in landfills. To put this into perspective, that's a garbage truck full of clothing every second. Most clothing items are worn 7 to 10 times before being discarded or thrown away. Because of the rise of social media and the fast-paced market, trends are changing as quickly as every week. Trends used to be a quarterly idea. Before that, it was yearly or it was defined by decade. So we're seeing this uptick in how many trends are changing and how quickly we need to get out new product regularly. It takes 2,700 liters of water to produce one cotton t-shirt. That is equivalent to 900 glasses of water for one person to drink. Then when you add in cleaning your clothing, the average washing machine produces 50 to 60 liters per load. Only around 12% of clothing is recycled at the end of its life. Now, a lot of this has to do with negligence on the part of the owner of the item. A lot of people do just throw out their clothing or just discard it, but some people do have good intentions and they take it to places like clothing recyclers or to places like Goodwill to donate. The problem is that Goodwill, if they don't have a use for it, will also ultimately end up throwing out that clothing later on. But it also has to do with the complicated blends of our clothing, so different fabrics, different types of weaves, and we make clothing that has different fabrics together because we want to create durable items that last a long time, or they stretch, or they don't wrinkle. There's reasons for that, and they make a lot of sense in a day-to-day -day lifestyle way. But when we're really thinking about recycling our clothing, that makes it tough because when we blend fabrics, the recycling companies do not always have the proper machinery to take care of these blended fabrics. I also think this is very interesting because as a Christian, we are told in some verses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that we should not be mixing fabrics. Now, do I think that's like a sinful thing? I don't think so anymore, but at the time that had a purpose in a place and it wasn't necessarily for recycling purposes, but I do think it is interesting that God commanded the Israelites not to mix their fabrics, and now that we're mixing fabrics, we're coming across an issue that we haven't found a resolution to. 
Now let's talk about the statistics behind the people who create our clothing. Approximately 75 million adult factory workers are employed annually to create the garments we wear. Out of those, less than 2% make a livable wage in the areas they occupy. An Oxfam 2019 report showed that 0% of Bangladesh workers made a livable wage that year, and only 1% of Vietnamese workers did. Many of these workers are children, as the work has a low skill requirement, and they can be exploited more easily to work for free. Over 160 million children create our clothing worldwide. Child labor laws are constantly violated, and a majority of the world is run on modern-day slavery. Fast fashion creation employs the use of 8,000 synthetic chemicals, many of which are breathed in by the workers constantly. There is almost always no ventilation system within these factories either. Workers' rights violations are commonplace in this industry. The average garment worker has a 96-hour work week. They start with a 14 to 16 hour, seven day a week model, but at busier times this increases and they cannot refuse because they will be fired on the spot. When they work overtime, they are not financially compensated for these hours. They also have no benefits, no paid time off, and no lunch or bathroom breaks. These factory workers are not allowed to form unions due to local laws, specific regulations about export zones, and due to the physical and verbal abuse they receive from the higher-ups in their companies. So with all this in mind, you might be wondering, what can I really do? How does this affect me? What should I be changing? I know I want to do something. This all sounds really bad, but where do I even start? Because it is an incredibly daunting task. The first thing I'm going to say is that you will never be able to fully remake the wheel of the fashion industry. But there are little choices that you can make in the way that you shop, in the way that you think, in what you tell other people and inform them about that will slowly change the industry for the better. So when I started to learn about this, the first thing that I did was I researched. All the statistics and information I included in today's podcast were found easily on Google. You can look up fast fashion statistics, are fashion industry workers paid a livable wage, safety concerns within the fashion industry, pollution statistics for the fashion industry, and many other keywords. Another resource I was going to give is you can look for brands um, on a website called The Good Trade. You can also watch a documentary called The True Cost. The True Cost was created in 2014. Uh, it was spurred on by the Rana Plaza collapse, and they did research for a year to create the documentary. And it is a little outdated statistically. Unfortunately, it's not outdated statistically because it got better. It's outdated statistically because the fashion industry has grown worse. I also like the true cost because it goes into how brands like Monsanto are exploiting farmers within India and within the United States. And it also talks about how many cotton farmers, which if you didn't know, Texas is one of the biggest cotton producing areas, I believe in the world. Many of those farmers are getting sick with the same diseases and cancers from the pesticides that they use in order to grow the crops. So I would say just start with research. Go look through the internet, see what you can find. The statistics and the results are staggering, but also taking time to find companies that you align with in values. Do they have a sustainably focused business model or a closed loop system? 
If you don't know, a closed-loop system are businesses reusing the same materials over and over again to create new products for purchase, so clothing does not end up in landfills. So how this works is I'll give the example of a company I really like. I'm wearing their sweat set today. It's called Four Days. And what they do is the materials that they use are recycled materials, and then they are created into a product that somebody buys. And when somebody purchases from Four Days, they're not only supporting a brand that supports sustainability, but they're also supporting workers who are paid a livable wage. So the power of the dollar comes in there, and that's a whole part of the closed-loop system as well. And then that person wears that item and they decide they don't want it anymore. So Four Days provides something called a take-back bag. You originally pay $20 and they will send you a bag and it's pretty big. I mean, it's probably like this big by this big. It's pretty massive and you can fit as much clothes as you can in there. And they will take it back and they will recycle your clothing for you because they have created machinery and they have a setup at their warehouses to be able to do that properly. And then you get the $20 back to your account in order to pay for more clothes from four days and continue the closed loop system and the support of a company that has those values. Other questions to ask when you're looking at brands is do they pay their workers a livable wage? What other benefits do their workers receive? Oftentimes, I find that brands are very proud to pay their workers a livable wage or give them benefits. They talk about how they're benefiting women, especially in a modern day, especially in the United States, where people are really big on feminism and women's rights and workers' rights and, of course, anti-slavery. This is a huge discussion behind your clothing and what are brands doing? And if a brand does not have a dropdown or a link available to read about what they're doing, if they're not transparent and it's not very easy to find, I usually find that they are not running their business in a way that's ethical. I'll try to remember to put brands below that I would avoid and ones that I like so that you can just have a starting point. You don't have to look through every brand you've ever shopped. And I'll try to make a lot of them more of the mainstream, sustainable, ethical, fair trade companies and more of the mainstream kind of big box department store designer houses that you should avoid as well. Another thing you can do is elongate the life of your clothing. You can thrift. You can do clothing swaps with your friends. I know our Bible study was talking about doing that, and I used to do that at college too. St. Kate's was really big on that. You can create a closed-loop system of your own by not throwing out your clothing into the garbage and putting it in a landfill, but instead finding places that will recycle your clothing, or you could allow your friends to look through items that you no longer want and see if they would like it before you donate or recycle. I will also try and put resources below that you can find places to recycle your clothing. I also try and put resources below where you can recycle your clothing nationally so it's not just Minnesota focused. I am not as well versed in the international realms so I'll do my best if I do find something I'll put that down in uh, the description below. Probably the biggest way that you can impact the fashion industry is by changing the way you think about clothing. Oftentimes I hear people talk about the price and why this clothing is too expensive. But you need to think about why is it beneficial to invest in the clothing we wear. When you feel discomfort about paying $40 for a white t-shirt from a sustainable brand, ask yourself why it has been normalized to pay $5 for an item, or why you wouldn't wear that item long enough for the $40 to equate to the life of the garment. When you go to purchase an item, think about why you feel the need to purchase it. Is it for one special event, or can you wear it five to seven different ways? Is an item being cute a good enough reason to continue the cycle of statistics I read earlier? 
And is something being on trend worth the continuation of abuse and slavery for other people? This may feel harsh, but your money has power. No matter what your age or financial status is, who you give your money to says a lot about what you value, what you stand for, and who you prioritize. As a Christian, this is a major reason why I believe God commanded us to steward the earth and to help the poor, the widows, and those in need. It's not just a feel-good idea, it's actually a command. And one of the easiest ways to do this is to pay attention to where our money goes and what we're supporting when we shop. Are those companies stewarding the earth well? Are those companies treating people with respect? Are they donating to charities that are benefiting the people in that local area? Are they making that area where the factories are better or worse? You have power in your purchase and you're not an exception to that whether you're a Christian or not. It should be something that we all view as important in our day-to-day -day interactions with people and in our decision making. A final way to do this is to give to organizations or purchase from companies that financially compensate women effectively. According to the United Nations Development Plan, the most effective strategy in international development is to put money directly into the hands of women. This is based off of the statistic that for every one woman brought out of poverty, she will bring seven other people over the poverty line with her. A 2017 study for Oxfam found that paying a livable wage for the average garment worker would only raise the cost of each item by 1%. Similarly, they found that raising the wages of the Indian garment workers by 20 cents per item would raise them out of poverty. Now, I'm sure you're getting to this point in the podcast and you're thinking this is really overwhelming. This is really changing the way that I think about clothing, what I think about what I purchase, and how I think about other people. And I've never really given thought to that. And I know that this can be kind of a scary thing and it can kind of be mind-boggling to try and figure out. But I really want to encourage you because it has been nine years of me going through this process and me educating other people online. And it not only has made a difference in the lives of my friends and how they purchase and what they think about, but it also has changed a lot about me. But it didn't all happen in one day. It's the little decisions consistently that will make a difference in the long run. So with all of this in mind, Slow fashion is the antithesis of fast fashion, as I said earlier. Slow fashion can also be called eco-friendly, sustainable, fair trade, closed loop. These are all terms that you can look up to learn more about slow fashion. It's a business model that benefits people and the planet. It also is one that makes you ponder and think about how you invest in clothing and really makes you think about what you're putting on your body and what you're communicating through what you wear. I'm going to stop the podcast here for today because I think that I've given a lot of information. There's a lot to chew on and a lot to take in, and I encourage you to listen to this podcast two or three times to really ingrain yourself with the ideas that I've talked about and with the statistics that I've quoted. My challenge for you this week is to go down below and look in the description at places that I would avoid and places that I would highly recommend. None of these are an advertisement. There's no paid promo this week. And so when you go and look, it's totally out of my own opinions and convictions. I spent the last nine years researching this and learning about it through college and also a continuation education on my own. So it's something that's happened slowly. And over time, you don't need to remake the wheel in one day. You don't need to rewrite everything and you won't be able to. 
So take things slow, learn what you can, and then come back to me and let me know which brands you really liked, which brands you discovered that you're going to be an avid shopper of. And if I have any brands that I didn't list below that you think are worth a mention, go ahead and shout them out in the comments and let me know about them. I hope you guys have a great week. I thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and on YouTube, and I'll see you next time.